Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We also acknowledge the significant contributions other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have made to life in Yarra, and pay our respects to all elders, past, present and future. You're listening to the Hour Libraries podcast and we are back for 2021. We've been very, very busy over the break and only partly binging Bridgerton in early January. For those of you who may be unaware, Bridgerton is a frothy Netflix series described as a cross between Pride and Prejudice and Gossip Girl. It's gorgeous, historically inaccurate, at least in its sort of costuming and music, uh, addictive and based on a Regency romance series from Julia Quinn. Uh, as soon as I finished binging it, I immediately went to find something like it. And if the uptake of our Regency Romance ebooks recently is any indication, I am not the only one who had that response. But as a newbie, I am not your ideal guide to the genre. Marcia, Melissa, and Connor, will you introduce yourselves and tell our listeners why they should listen to you on all matters of romance with a capital R? I'm Melissa. I'm one of the librarians at Yarra. I read my first Regency Romance probably when I was about 12 or 13. Um, staying in someone else's house, picked up an ordinary Mills and Boone, read it, the heroine was so wet, gave up her career in order to be with the hero. And even at 12, I didn't love that. And the one next to it was a Regency romance and the heroine was sparkling and witty and clever and I was hooked. Was it Georgette Hart? No, I have no idea what it was, but it wasn't Georgette. I didn't come to Georgette until I was in my 20s. I'm Marcia and I'm another one of the librarians at Yarra Libraries. I asked Melissa about Georgette Heyer because my introduction to Regency romances really wasn't to Regency romances per se, it was to Georgette Heyer. My mother gave me a book called These Old Shades when I was 14 or so and uh, told me that I'd like it and I loved it. It was my introduction to that archetypal if you've just loved Bridgerton I'll say it was by introduction to the Simons of the genre yes the imperious devilishly handsome but deeply troubled wounded hunks of gorgeousness looking for the woman who is going to save them yes the Duke of Avon was my first Simon and uh, he hooked me into the um, the genre very 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 persuasively. I would say that Georgette Heyer is the original and the best. People would argue with me about the best, but um, certainly She's the, the original. She's the best. I spent years of my life looking for someone who was as good, and um, I came up with a short list of people who could write well, but she's the best, in my opinion. Hello, I'm Connor. I'm a library officer at Yarra Libraries. Um, and you're going to have to forgive my voice if it's a little scratchy at some time during this podcast. I went to three footy games over the weekend and I am proof that you can be both a sports nerd and a romance nerd. Um, and I am both. And I have just started Georgette Hire upon the passionate recommendation of both Melissa and Marcia. And I loved it. I read my first one over the weekend and it was so much funnier and lovelier than I than I expected it to be. But I have come to hire quite late rather than her being my first. I'm actually coming from a bit of a different perspective with Regency um, than Melissa and Marcia. So I would say probably that my first experience with 
conventions of a Regency romance was through fan fiction, which I read and wrote a bunch of as a teenager, and I continue to do so as an adult. And a lot of the tropes that come out of a, a Regency setting are like immediately transplantable into an alternate universe kind of fanfic world. You take your favourite characters and you put them in beautiful costumes and you chuck them into Regency era and suddenly you have thousands of hours worth of entertainment. And so that's that's probably where I've encountered most of my um, my Regency. Uh, and then I am I am coming back around to the the OG in higher. And which one did you read, Connor? So I read, um, I read, now this is a point of contention between Marcia and Melissa. I read The Convenient <laughs> Marriage and I was very strongly told not to and that I should have started with The Grand Sophie, um, which will be my my second read. I absolutely loved The Convenient Marriage. It was utterly hilarious. So The Convenient Marriage was my recommendation, but I think Marcia's recommendation of The Grand Sophie was just as valid, I have to add. But isn't The Convenient Marriage funny? Well, my problem with The Convenient Marriage is it's one of the ones that I've only read a few times. I went through Georgette Hire like a vacuum cleaner and um, I read all her Regency romances. And then I picked, there were probably about two thirds of them that I decided, well, I need to read these books every year. And every once in a while, like every five or ten years, I'd think, oh, I haven't read that one for a while. And The Convenient Marriage was in the, haven't read that one for a while. So while I remember Horatia and Horry, I think it was Horry, what they Horry. called her, Horry? Yeah. Horry yeah. with the nose and the stammer. Mostly I remember thinking it was um, not as, not quite up to, say, well, perhaps what it was was I like my heroines a bit older. Fair enough. Yeah. Like Grand Sophie is um, an independent woman. Yes. Frederica is an independent woman. I love Frederica. I love the Grand Sophie. Yes. Um, I like Venetia and she's what? Yes. She's 25, which for a Regency romance is practically on the shelf, you know? We should we should just say when we say Regency, we mean from... 1811 to 1820, George III was out of action with madness and the Prince of Wales was the regent from 1811 to 1820. So a very specific time period there. Georgette hires these old shades, I have to confess, is actually Georgette in that case. Oh, yes. And so is The Convenient Marriage. It occurs to me right now, just from but, the costumes. But Georgette Hire wrote a sequel which she didn't often do. In fact, I don't think ever else did. She wrote The Devil's Cub, which is um, yes. a Regency romance. So is it just the time period that makes something a Regency romance or, or not a Regency romance? Well, it can't be Regency if it's not in the time period because it's simply not Regency. It's I think the time period speaks to a lot of what it – because you know the Victorian period is coming – that all of this um, this freedom and this um, charm and, you know, fashion and everything else is about to get swallowed up by pianos having clothing <laughs> piano on their legs. On piano legs, yes. Yes. Um, there's this feeling of this last bright moment before the prudes took over. 
And the Georgians were part of that because the Georgians going into the Regency period, you know, the men wore beautiful colours and they made up their faces and they wore wigs. It was only towards the Regency period that that whole men have to wear, you know, beige and black took over. And that was um, the Beau Brummel and your all of that. And, you, and your tailoring. And yeah, your, and you saw that fits. coming in and there was this strong feeling that the um, the the ones who still clung to their beautifully, um, you know, bright-coloured silks and satins, they were um, they were missing the, the fashion trend. By the time you got to uh, the Victorian period, all the men were Prince Albert. They were all in, you know, black. They were all they were they didn't have the I don't know, the, the flamboyance. The, yes. And I think that's what I part of why period is important is because you know that once that bright light went out and Victoria took over, it was different. It wasn't like that. It sounds like something of a predecessor to like the roaring 20s. Yes. Um, and you get that real, you get that burst of, of of grandeur and wealth and fun and freedom before everything absolutely goes down the drain. Although perhaps with the Great Regency. Depression. Yes, exactly. It, but without, you know, Regency perhaps doesn't have the economic implication, but it does, it loses all of its, it, its joy and its um, sensuality and its freedom. And I'd argue that that's not actually kind of completely, I'd say that is much more Edwardian than Victorian, but for the purposes of the books, I think exactly you can say that. Yeah, but also, like, if you look at the the fashions in the Regency period, the women's skirts were getting that little bit shorter so they could show a bit of ankle. Well, it was and the number wild of, compared to well, what it yeah. was before, wasn't it? Well, so and different. the number of petticoats they had to wear were getting – and then they were dampening down their petticoats <laughs> so that they would cling to their figure. You know, if you look at costume drama like Bridgerton – and then costume drama set in the Victorian period, you can actually see a woman's figure yes. in Regency clothing. They're not sort of like wearing a corset and a massive crinoline. There's a famous cartoon, I don't know if it was Crookshank or another one of those, that it's got an old lady in black with a black bonnet and the caption is Bombazine. And it has next to that a young lady in very transparent white and the caption is Bumby Scene. And I think it's adorable. That is very, very good. So how important overall do you do all of you feel that historical accuracy is to a Regency romance? I don't think it's important to Bridgerton. I don't think Bridgerton needs historical accuracy. It's got the feel of it. It's got the joy of it, the fun of it. Having grown into the genre reading Georgette higher. The only thing I object to, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be perfectly accurate. It just have to just has to a, avoid the glaring errors. I remember reading um, in my search for someone who wrote as well as Georgette, I remember reading an American who had decided that the oldest son was the Duke and the second son was the Marquis and the third son was the Earl and the fourth son was the Viscount and the fifth son was the Baron and just going, no, no, <laughs> no. Or reading them where, the, you know, the, the main character who's supposed to be the daughter of an aristocratic English, Englishman has got a name like um, Taylor or Madison. 
and thinking, no, <laughs> no. that's abhorrent. <laughs> I, I can't cope with that that kind of. But anything else, um, I'm not fussed as long as the story itself is true to the spirit, which I think Bridgerton is. I think you're right about that, Marcia. I think that Bridgerton in particular, I think that it's been quite a deliberate push not to be kind of perfectly historically accurate. And I think that fits with its like, it's fun, frothy vibe, which I think is why so many people connected to it. But I think having the contrast and the incongruity of having like Billie Eilish, but in strings has really added something that people have related to and has been quite refreshing, um, particularly in that visual medium. I remember the 2004 adaptation of Marie Antoinette did the same thing and it, it was very much not historically accurate. There were very blatant, obvious like scenes of, you know, a pair of cons in amongst, you know, beautiful jewel encrusted heels that you, they might have worn. Uh, and they and they used like Susie and the Banshees as the music instead of period appropriate, wonderful, peaceful, you know, the bangers of the time. But I think that I think that's been a really deliberate move. And for me, it for me it doesn't matter. I'm not so wedded to historical accuracy as to creating the feeling of of the time. So I'm not super pedantic. I I agree with that. I feel you need the work of art, the book or the TV show or the film or whatever to be consistent within itself. So, you know, if you've got, um, all, you know, all our contemporary songs with the um, string quartet and you've got, you know, if if aspects of it aren't historically accurate, you know what to expect and you are kind of um, safe in that environment. If you're reading something that is trying to be set in a particular era and it drops a historical clangor it's really disturbing and it pulls you out of the story yes and that's, I just don't want to be yanked out of a, a, a terrific page turning yarn by something that's so obviously wrong and all would have taken was a bit of a wikipedia search to you know make it right and Bridgerton doesn't suffer from that Bridgerton's consistent within its own universe Though I kept on saying, why is the Duke wearing black shirt? He should not be wearing a black shirt. He should be wearing a white linen shirt. But I think it I might have just got it. Him. It did look good on him, it's didn't it? It's a very it? good reason. was wearing it. It looked wonderful on him. But, Melissa, I think you might be suffering from something I regularly suffer from, which is just constant recollection of Mr Darcy. Maybe that's it. Maybe <laughs> that's it. I thought you were going to say nitpickery. But, you know, that too. <laughs> no, the... Um... The Bridgerton vibe, I think, is is where it wants to be for a 21st century Regency romance. You've um, all recently touched on one of the things that people have found most appealing about Bridgerton, the Duke. Um, he has been very popular. For people who like their heroes to be uh, suave and slightly tortured and very, very hot, what Regency romances would you recommend? Well, Georgette High has got some suave and torturously hot um, the Duke of Avon. I mean, my 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 favourite quote is, um, "He bore them down with a merciless strength, belied by his foppish appearance." And that's the Duke. He's sort of got this this sardonic, fierce, merciless inner thing, but he clothes the outside with silks and satins, and he looks just gorgeous. I love um, that description of like this kind of unassuming 
kind of guy that I think rings true even now. And then for some absurd confected reason like boxing as a hobby he takes his shirt off and you're like oh my god he has arms (laughs) (laughs) but the boxing is very true all gentlemen went to the gentleman jackson's was it to do the boxing stuff so yep and the and the fencing um but getting back to imperious and devilishly handsome dukes they don't have to be dukes mary bellogs got a, a nicely tortured Marquis in her um, one of her earlier books, The Temporary Wife, who's bitterly um, at odds with his father, who's the Duke. That, that's that's a nice that's a nicely tortured man. And I'm thinking of um, Loretta Chase, whose earlier books I adored, the um, the Carsington novels. I love um, the Carsington. Don't don't know if any of them were dukes, but I know that the Lord of Scoundrels, if he was indeed a Carsington. My memory might not be right here. No, but he, he was very he tortured. was tortured. Oh, so tortured. In terms of brooding, tortured, extremely hot uh, protagonists, which is very much my type, um, and having just read The Convenient Marriage, I did fall quite hard for the Earl of Rule. He just had that wonderful sort of nonchalance about him and he had – just that thing that, Marcia, you were just talking about of a kind of a steeliness, a coldness that only came out when he was particularly impassioned or if if someone had threatened Horry. And, and I just loved him. He was so funny, but also I think he also captured a kind of kindness as well um, that I think is sometimes lacking in these um, – in these beautiful dukes, you know, they can be all steeliness and all coldness, but then you don't get the the squishy inside, which I think every person who reads a Regency romance is kind of hoping for just a little <laughs> bit inside. And hoping Georgette for- does it particularly well. She often she often puts the affable kind side to the fore and but there's always that inner core of steel. Yeah, or it's, the other way around. Rule was exactly that. The Loretta Chase hero I'm thinking of is The Last Hellion, oh. which is in the Scoundrel series. So the Scoundrel series starts with Lord of Scoundrels, and he is such, such, oh, he's he's just, he's he's a damaged man saved by a, an incredibly funny woman. But um, the Last Hellion, the Duke of Ainswood, um you know, apart from being devastatingly good-looking, um, he's got it all. He's reckless and disreputable and wild, and he's going to to kill himself with alcohol and everything else until he's saved by meeting the right woman, which is basically a good woman. Yes. it's yeah, and not necessarily a good woman. That's why I like Mary Bellog. Mary Bellog. Sometimes they're not saved by a good woman at all. So um, I like the woman to have a bit of. A bit of story. My probably my only, not a complaint because it's very true to the genre. My only complaint about Bridgerton is that um, Daphne is very typical of that kind of heroine who's got nothing to bring to the relationship except innocence. And um, yes. she's we, very doe-eyed. Yeah. I think if you looked up doe-eyed in the dictionary, you would you would see lovely Daphne. Yeah. 
And I, I don't mind a few heroines like that, but I'd much prefer your Frederica's and your Grand Sophie's. And well, we, um, um, I can't remember her name, but the the character the character Miss Wonderful in one of those Carsington novels by Loretta Chase, who dresses badly and her pins are always falling out of her hair, and that is for reasons. But she's building canals on her property. Yeah, she brings or, a lot. Or Daphne in. Um, in the second Carsington book, who's trooping through Egypt trying to find the um, Rosetta Stone. Yeah, she's an Egyptologist. It's, um, yeah, I like I like that. And that's why I think it's nice that Eloise is a character in, in Bridgerton because she is in herself representative of that minor, they used to call them blue stockings, but I love a good blue stocking Regency Speak- romance. So speaking of blue stockings, also adore a blue stocking. Um, Eloise was very much the character that I most related to in Bridgerton. Uh, every time she was on screen, I just, I reveled in her. I think it is an absolute atrocity that the uh, the TV adaptation has not chosen to make her queer. I very much read her as queer. But speaking of blue stockings, I have a recommendation that technically, okay, it does fall out of the, um, of the Regency timeline, which is a very strict decade. But I read the most sort of wonderful novel that I think captured some of the essence of, of Regency, despite being later, called uh, – it was Bringing Down the Duke um, by Evie Dunmore. And it had yeah. – it just had all of the things that we've been discussing. It has it has a duke, Sebastian, and he is – he's very cold and he's very – he's not affable at all. He's is he a, tortured? He's a bit tortured. He is also a Tory, which did make it difficult for me to like him, but I did warm to him. And and it's about this young suffragette, Annabelle, um, and she's not actually a suffragette at the outset of the novel. She's this destitute girl who so desperately wants to go to Oxford. All she wants to do is study and use her mind and and sort of better herself in that way. She's not at all interested in men or dukes and she's sent to Oxford on a scholarship from the suffragettes and the only thing that they ask of her is a little like quid pro quo, you help our cause, you seduce this duke to our cause and maybe to your bed, we'll send you to Oxford. And if that is not enough to entice you, I I don't know that you're listening to the right podcast because it was just (laughs) wonderful, wonderful. (laughs) Well, you've convinced me. I'm definitely going to read that one later on. Uh, obviously, this podcast is all just a, a cunning ploy for me to get more booked recommendations. Um, so you've managed to cover actually a few of the things that other people have found compelling about Bridgerton. There's Daphne as a woman seeking to control her own destiny within the constraints of the time. Uh, Eloise and her blue stocking rants, which I did very much enjoy as well. One of the other things that people have enjoyed about Bridgerton has been the, at least compared to other filmed costume dramas, the relative diversity of the cast. Perhaps an example of how what audiences expect or want out of both a TV show and a book have perhaps changed over time. How have Regency romances changed? I I think Mary Bellog changed the genre when she started. Mary Bellog these days is mostly known for her, um, like her slightly married and slightly whatever books. But her early books, um, I remember reading Dancing for Clara and thinking, how can you have a Regency romance with um, a heroine who can't walk? And then I thought, well, why not? It's like when Georgette Heyer wrote, cotillion and 
shock horror, Freddie is not an alpha male. How can you have a Regency romance with a man who's not an alpha male? It absolutely can be done. Mary Bella, she also broke the mould that said every heroine has to be 17 years old. She had um, mature women, not, not someone who was on the shelf at 25 mature, but someone who was in their 40s falling in love. That's, oh, I love this. I've not read Mary Ballag. I don't know. I, I sort of, Mary Ballag is like a couple of authors. There, there's a little school of authors that started publishing in the Signet Regency romances. And I've often felt that whoever was the editor of the Signet mm. Regency romances must have grown up reading Georgette Higher because their standard was Georgette Higher High. And um, some of the authors who went on after Signet Regency romances and then started publishing with others, their books weren't as as good in well, that's not correct. Their books weren't as um weren't as much to my liking. But Mary Ballack started with the the um Signet Regency romances and her early books like The Lady with the Black Umbrella and Dancing with Clara, those early books and the Precious Pearl one were all those really early Signet Regency romances. And then you get the Joan Wolfe books from the same period that have been republished with the most bodice-ripping covers. But actually, if you read um, Margarita and the Earl, you'll come away with it just knowing a hell of a lot more about what was happening in South America at the period of the Regency period. Wow. Um, Margarita is a refugee from war. She's suffering from, they don't use the term, she's suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. She's been on that long march that Bolivia's people had to do. She got taken away from the city just before the, um, the city was wiped out. She is a woman who is just completely emotionally detached at the beginning of the book. She's an amazing character. And you don't you don't expect it. You don't expect a genre that is known for sort of like light and fluffy to come out with margaritas. But Joan Wolfe, Joan Wolfe in her signet phase has some characters that I just adore. She has a character in a book called Lord Richard's Daughter who spent her early years traipsing around Africa with her father who was a missionary explorer or more of a missionary and there's this fabulous scene where she's gone into London English society and um, they're out with a little party of friends and our main character has been, he's hurt his hand. So when the mad dog is threatening the party and he's got the gun, he throws the gun to the girl and all the other men are like, what, what, why did you throw her the gun? And he goes, well, she spent the last 15 years in Africa. She's been shooting her breakfast. Of course I threw her the gun. <laughs> and all the other men are like, no, no, but, but, but where are the men? <laughs> and I loved him for it. I loved him for And that's, that's Joan Wolf for you. All I want out of life is to be the girl who gets thrown the gun. I, that's the only <laughs> reputation I want. That is wonderful. Yeah, well, it's interesting because she, all she wants is to be the Daphne Bridgerton 
That's what she wants. She spent all that time troping around Africa, wanting to be Daphne Bridgerton, wanting to have that come out, wanting to be the innocent, pure girl who men want to look after, and then realises it's just not her. It is. She writes, and then, I mean, I'm going to go on about Joan Wolfe. Joan Wolfe wrote um, another book, which is about the main character is the daughter of an Irish revolutionary. And basically her marriage was designed politically to stop the fighting. So she's Irish and he's an English duke. And, um, oh, it's just oh, it's really good stuff. Now, Marcia, you mentioned back a bit the term bodice ripper. And that reminded me of something that I think has changed a lot in the last you know, 20 years or so of um, historical romance. And, I mean, these books are generally full of sex, right? They're not um, prudish in any way. But I reckon the issue of consent in historical sex, as it were, has really come up front and forward, maybe since the Me Too movement, but I think even before that. Well, first of all, there's no sex in Georgia Hire. No, there is that. <laughs> but that was a lot, lot longer ago than 20 or 30 years ago. Um, I, I actually, for me, consent is an issue and I think it's an issue in Bridgerton too. My issue with Georgette Heyer and actually the trope of, of the innocent young girl and the tortured duke is the age difference. Yes, yes. I, I actually don't think... A uh, 37-year-old man is always going to be the best husband to a 17-year-old. The and it it seems to me part and parcel of of the Regency romance that the age differential has to be there because the girl has to be young, sweet, and naive, and innocent, and the guy has to have lived enough life to have become tortured. <laughs> yes, but then I don't think I don't. I don't think I've read anything recently with an enormous age gap like that. No, there's no appeal, is there? No, not really, no. I think that's pretty indicative of the way that the romance genre in general, and I think certainly Regency as a subgenre, has progressed over time. And it's it's certainly happened in the last 20 or 30 years, but I think it's, it is continuing to evolve as we're watching new novels being published, particularly those that are coming out of the really big imprints of like your, your, your Mills and Boone kind of subgenres, um, And I think that what we're seeing is that there is a lot more focus and care taken with consent. Um, and I know that I've certainly heard romance authors themselves speaking about the fact that maybe what they themselves wrote 20 years ago, mm. they would never dare to, they would never think to put that into a novel now yeah. because our thinking around consent and around communication and around sex has changed so much it just in a really short amount of time yeah. that yeah. what would be seen now is really, really problematic. And I know that a lot of people have had large issues with Bridgerton um, for not only using source material that does have a really problematic, dubious consent scene, um, in its, in its source material, but then they've chosen to to recreate that. And I think there is a decent argument for just having eliminated that plot point or handled it in a in a in a different way that wasn't quite so screwed up, really. Um, I definitely had had problems with it. And I think that 
it's not necessarily giving romance as a genre enough credit for the work and the progress and the evolution that it is going through and it continues to go through. I think it gives people the wrong impression about love stories, which is what they are. I think that's that's key too, that people having impressions of love stories that aren't based on reading them yes. are going to be um, misled. The, the the depth on variety in in the romantic genres is just massive. My daughter reads romantic fiction, but it's all about alien abductions. But they're, they're romances. People feel quite willing and able to pontificate about romance without actually having read. Anything. Because they've already decided. People think, I mean, I, I don't think there are many writers I have ever read who are as gifted at telling a story as Georgia Heyer. She is a magnificent writer. She really is. Just reading um, The Convenient Marriage again um, and just the way just the the way she comes at each character, kind of moving them around a set, but then you'll have, um, you know, an insight from, from one of them and the incredible humour, um, just, just, yeah, very clever, very, very clever. I think what you get from people who have never read a romance but feel perfectly able to, to speak on it is that what you're getting is a sneering at... Yep. At fun and at love and at a happy ending, which are all socialised as feminine and as female interests. And really, I think that really reflects in the Regency period, which, as we've discussed, was about freedom and it was about that that excess and that fun and there was in all of these regency stories they're about love because there was a lot of love and certainly the stories and the people that we're reading about largely are extremely privileged you know they're they're part of the ton and like it is just I think so much of what you get is sexist the sneering and it's also just elitist and I I just don't I don't see the point in picking apart other people's joy because no, for no. me what romance is is joy and escapist and that is why I love it and it's you know the guaranteed happy ever after or happy for now it's someone I heard recently describing it as emotional justice that you especially in times of trouble like global pandemics sometimes you just want to pick up a book and know before you start reading it, that whatever um, barriers and and troubles and hurdles that the characters have to go through, you know it will work out okay in the end. And I think that is a really lovely thing because there's infinite ways to get there. There's no formula or one way of writing a happy ending. But I think the fact that you know that there's going to be, that everything is going to be resolved in a really emotionally satisfying way why is that any different from everything being resolved at the end of a murder and we've got good writing it's not like they're garbage it's got well, well, you've also there well. is also there is also garbage in there. there is garbage there is there's, that's why you have to be guided by people who say start with georgette hair um, because um i remember Anne gracie who's an australian writer of very good regency romances yep. Um, she came to speak at one of our libraries years ago 
and she talked about um, heroines who were um, – she had an acronym that I can't remember, but it basically came down, Too Dumb to Live. Oh, yes, I remember that. Yes. Because the heroine was just so plain stupid, she would never have survived to being an adult. And um, and then the, the book she was saying, because she was basically saying at that point – our library was relying on donations that people would bring in bags of romance books that they'd bought and donate them to the library. And she was the one who told me, which I hadn't realised, that people used to donate the books they never wanted to read again. Ah, well, I found Loretta Chase's Mr Wonderful, which is one of my favourites of all time, um, from one of those donation bags, so they weren't all bad. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But uh, I thought that was interesting. Well, it meant that I had to start seriously looking at selecting books for the collection, not relying on, um, you know, the lady down the road who got five books from the supermarket every month to finish reading them and bring them up. We have a much better collection of romance these days because because it's deliberately chosen. It's not relying on what people don't want to keep. I think as well in terms of good writing, because you both write in any genre, there is tosh, there's rubbish. But I think in terms of writing romance and, you know, the very definition of, of, of the genre of romance is there must be a happy ending, is that writing a happy ending is hard. It's so much harder to satisfactorily conclude in a happy way without it seeming overdone and without it seeming too neatly tied up and to be able to leave you with that contented feeling rather than just going, oh, yeah, the world's bleak, isn't it? This book yes. just ends and everyone's unhappy and that is the world that we live in. That's easy to do. That's You can look out, you can look out your window and that that is the world. That's a rather cynical take. But to write a happy ending that will leave you full and pleased and and contented that that is such a hard thing to do and I think so many authors manage to pull that off and also to do it without falling into some of the um the common things that not so good authors rely on which is for example the classic misunderstanding that has me screaming at the book just use your words just talk to her. Just use your words. No, the best the best romances are where the characters' personalities and foibles are completely intrinsic to the plot and the difficulties um, and they don't feel like a, an add-on or, or we'll just pop this trope in here because people like it. But the, the personalities of the the main characters are just so intertwined with, with what happens and why. And that's not easy. I haven't mentioned Carla Kelly. She's probably, after Georgette Heyer, my favourite because she is such a consistently good writer. But she's interesting in that the more she writes, the lower down in social stature her heroines and heroes go. She started off writing about dukes and earls. And these days she's far more likely to write about a ship's captain. They're not, they're not ordinary people in the fact that in that period, just having um, a safe place to live and food on the table made you lucky. But she's definitely writing about um, the upper middle class and her heroines and heroes are still really engaging, even without the tortured duke. That that just brings me to my absolute favourite after Georgette, who's um, a self-published writer, She's self-published now because that suits her better. She hasn't always been. But she's KJ Charles and she 
speaking of diversity, she writes um, all kinds of characters, but the, the trilogy I'm thinking of right now is her Regency one called The Society of Gentlemen. And apart from the fact that it's about a bunch of gay male characters, it's also about that period. That period of the Regency wasn't just the Ton and the Upper 10,000, the Dukes and Balls. It was um, hunger and corn laws and um, the Cato Street plot to overthrow the government that was um, that's actually mentioned in one of these books and, you know, sedition and Peterloo and all sorts of massive social upheaval and poverty and KJ writes about all of these things in in this trilogy with a couple of little extra novellas. And so we have uh, a character who runs a sort of seditious bookshop. We have the character who's a brother of a lord. We have um, this incredibly dandified character who cares, it would seem on the surface, about dress and clothing more than anything else. But, you know, he has PTSD from from I think it might have been Waterloo. So this wonderful um, array of characters, including people of colour, including trans people. And what I was just saying before, they never feel like these these characters are just plonked in there to make it more interesting. It's it's all around the personalities and the characters of these people. Um, and they're just wonderful. So I have to have to chuck that in there because she's a terrific writer. Melissa, I'm dying to read a KJ Charles, and I have been for a while, and I think this may actually be what makes me bite the bullet and, and do it, is that I think the key there to incorporating diversity into your worlds is not to write a world about here is a diverse person. It's to write the world because the world Absolutely. is full of diverse people. Yeah, and it yeah. sounds like that's exactly what she's been able to accomplish and that it yeah. is she's she's captured Regency because it, it wasn't realistically, historically accurately it was not just a world full of rich white people well kj she had a little bit of criticism from having people of color in her novels and she counted up the number of dukes that existed in regency england and the number of black people that lived in regency england and there were way more black people than dukes and no one complains about the number of dukes in um, regency novels so i thought that was hilarious Do any of you have any final recommendations for um, fans of Bridgerton or for people who'd like something slightly different in the Regency romance genre? Well, I'd recommend Anne Gracie, who's already been mentioned, and Stephanie Lawrence and Elizabeth Rolls as Australian writers. Um, And I'd mention Kat Sebastian as another uh, another writer with um, queer and diverse characters that form firmly into that Regency romance genre. I probably would recommend... Julianne Donaldson, um, who's relatively recent, and I read her Eden Brook and loved it. it. Was gorgeous. It has a a beautiful scene in it where um, the arrogant hero is very rude to her, and she says to him, she says, "Well, I have to apologise. I thought I was talking to gentlemen, but I was obviously mistaken." And it's just a splendid put down. I do like a good put down. Well, I'm going to go a slightly more unconventional route. Um, I mentioned fan fiction at the beginning of the recording, and I'm going to recommend you go and read some Bridgerton fan fiction or read some fan fiction of of these Regency authors or even just go and find a, a show or a movie or a book that you love. I guarantee you 
there is a Regency AU out there. And the utter, like the mad research that fanfic writers put in to their work is just as much, if not more, as published authors. Um, the, The search histories of a fanfic writer is like probably cause for them to have an ASIO file. And it is just, it's, I can't recommend it more, and I think it's an an undervalued medium. Um, and we are seeing a lot more writers who started on fanfic then becoming published authors in the conventional sense. Connor, I read Wattpad. Do you recommend any other sites? Oh, absolutely. Wattpad is fantastic. I think the um, I think the biggest collection would be on Archive of Our Own. Um, And just as a bit of a data nerd, Archive of Our Own has the most flawless tagging system that I have ever, I've ever encountered as a librarian. It is like, you will enjoy it. Go and have a look. It is flawless. It is so well kept. You're listening to the Our Libraries podcast. That was with some fantastic Regency romance recommendations from Marcia, Connor and Melissa. Uh, you'll find their recommendations in the show notes for this episode. And you can also find more Regency romance by going to Ad Library and looking at our Regency romance shelf. And if you enjoyed hearing these fantastic librarians talk about books, we also have a monthly program called, funnily enough, uh, Talking About Books. So you can find that through the Our Libraries website or have a look in the What's On. Thank you for joining us and we hope you you enjoy your post Bridgerton reads.